Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Pod Save the People. Now, we have a jam-packed episode. We have a quick update about where healthcare is from Andy Slavitt, the former head of Obamacare. We have an interview with Betsy Hodges, the current mayor of Minneapolis, and with Tracy Ellis Ross, the incredible actress. In the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam. Before we jump into this jam-packed episode, I want to offer Wara based on an Audrey Lorde quote where she said, There is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. Now, I say that because what I know to be true is that our identities are not mutually exclusive, but either interdependent or connected. That I show up as a gay black man, all of those things exist at the same time. That race, gender, identity, class are always at play. So when we have conversations about what justice looks like, what equity, when people get what they deserve, uh, what they should get, that we have to be mindful that people don't exist in one sphere, but they exist in the totality of who they are. And that we have to talk about that, we have to explore that. And when we think about what a just world looks like, when we think about solutions look like, it has to take those things into account. That we this is never about one issue, this is about all the issues. And that should not overwhelm you, that should empower you. Because we want all of you to be free. We want all of you to live in a world that's just and equitable, not just one part of you. So keep the fight and know that we can't fix what we don't talk about. Let's get to it. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing, Samuel Sinyangwe, your favorite data scientist, and Clint Smith III, the resident academic. It's the news. This is Brittany, Miss Packnett, on all social media. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith. It's Clint Smith III, Clint Smith III on social media. <laughs> Every time you say I, I, I it makes me laugh. Uh, and this is <laughs> this is DeRay uh, at DeRay on Twitter. My news is an article that came out um, recently from Mother Jones called North Dakota's Norway Experiment. Uh, and it's about uh, this woman named Leanne Birch, who runs North Dakota's Department of Corrections, uh, which includes you know their prison system there. And she took a trip to Norway to see how uh, the prisons were, what the conditions were like in Norway's prisons. Um, And so for folks who don't know, Norway for some time has been lifted up as this example of uh, sort of like the most humane prison system in in the world. Uh, It has this sort of reputation. Um, Although, you know, I don't know how, as long as the prison system, you know, it's hard to even use the the term humane in that context. Um, But, you know, this woman goes there, she sees it, and she comes back, and her apparently the, the article is chronicling how her entire sort of perspective on uh, what the conditions should be like uh, in the prison system have changed following that experience. So the quote from her is, how did we think it was okay to put human beings in cage-like settings? Um, and this article is fascinating. I bring it to the group because uh, for two things. One, you know, it is an example that other types of environments are possible, other types of ways of 
um, of addressing, you know, issues like crime and, and, and issues like, uh, how should we actually be treating people, um, who are human beings, even, you know, in the context of people making mistakes or committing crimes. Um, and I think the second piece that's interesting is, uh, the article goes on to chronicle the types of changes that, that she actually made as a response. Uh, and it, it taught me the incredible type of discretion and power that people, the people who run the Department of Corrections, like not the elected representatives, not the governor, but the person in charge of that department has to actually address some of the fundamental issues and inequities within the prison system from the conditions, from solitary confinement, uh, to the wages of people who are laborers working within prison. Uh, all of those things, uh, the person running the Department of Corrections in most states actually has tremendous power to, to change. So, you know, in this article, um, you know, she was saying how she had moved to end solitary confinement, uh, moved to, you know, address other issues where now you have people who are incarcerated, who are living um, in not in caged environments, but instead, you know, they actually bought a, uh, like a trailer uh, with various almost like motel rooms where folks are now being housed uh, before they're released. Um, and other things. So uh, I wanted to talk about this because, you know, in many ways, um, this is a potential point of advocacy. Uh, if that person who's running these different state departments of corrections wants to make real changes, like that actually can happen without needing new legislation. You know, this is so interesting, Sam, um, and I'm really glad you brought it to the group. I had seen some coverage of Norway's prisons um, in documentaries previously. But what I found really fascinating about this article is that even though um, the, the head of the Department of Corrections herself was touched by the need to preserve people's humanity, the way she made the appeal to lawmakers and to powerful forces in the state of North Dakota was actually um, by making an argument about cost, right? Um, so what she says is that, and she reminded legislators, was that it is very costly to imprison people in the way that they have been. And given that North Dakota is experiencing what the article calls falling oil and grain prices, the state government has had to tighten their belts. They've had to spend less money. And so this is a way that she appealed to them to actually do that. So what is more humane is actually less costly to the state. Um, and I've been thinking about this for a long time when it comes to conversations about um, prison reform and potentially prison abolishment. Um, we spend far more on our traditional prisons than we spend on education. Um, we have been spending, uh, we have been increasing the amount of money that we've been spending on imprisonment um, at far faster rates than we've been increasing uh, our education spending. Similarly, you know, these are taxpayer dollars. So in, in the ways that taxpayers are paying for everything from um, the kind of inhumane imprisonment that we're talking about right now to the kind of payouts that victims' families receive um, in incidents of police violence, there are much more uh, healthy ways to be spending those taxpayer dollars if we actually would treat people like human beings. You know, you know, I recently visited a prison and and I've thought a lot about this. And Sam, to your point about what does it even mean to be a humane place that we put people in cages? And um, and if anything, you know, I'll echo what I'll just co-sign on what everybody else said. But it's made me think a lot, too, about the way that the media has completely shaped our understanding of what people deserve in prison. That like so many images we see are like people in jumpsuits, because if you're not, if Lord forbid you wear what we colloquially 
call street clothes, like obviously that'll be dangerous and lead to crime. And and people have to be locked up separately because if they're not locked up separately, then then like it'll lead to chaos and they can't actually get healthy food because they don't deserve it. Because every single crime that has ever happened, you should eat slop and oatmeal for the rest of your life for breakfast. And and if it's not the media, I don't know where those images came from, but that is like how so many, even progressive people are sort of like, well, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have stolen something. And like we said, when I, when Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia was on the pod, you steal $200, something, $200 theft in Virginia is a felony. And people have an idea of what a felony is. And people's gut reaction is like, you know, I don't know, a major murder. And it's like, no, no, felony theft is uh, stealing a bike. So you know, the way that these images are rendered in public has to be a part of this change, I would offer for us to think about this. Because what the article also talks about is, like, they have transition housing, essentially, where people can, like, learn how to live alone and, like, in closed spaces. So when they transition out into, you know, society, they have that skill already. And we don't see that ever. You know, we we only are talking about it here on the podcast because we read an article about it. We didn't see it anywhere in the media. Yeah, and for me, it's interesting. I struggle a bit with even uh, putting, framing a prison as being a place that can be humane. Does that make sense? Right? Mm, like, I think that certain, certainly prisons are, exist on a spectrum of how humane they treat the people inside of them. But I really, for me, like the institution of the prison is almost an inherently dehumanizing space. And I don't know. And I, and, and I think it is important that we ensure that these spaces treat people as full people deserving of all the things that someone should have as, as a, as a human right. Um, but I think something, something is, is off for me when we think about, uh, you know, a prison as a place that can be humane. Like, I almost think there's a sort of some some different nomenclature that we need um, to sort of adequately describe it. I'm not even sure what that is. So my news this week uh, is about something that was covered by the New York Times, uh, and it's a phenomenon being called Jane Crow. Uh, it um, has to do with the ways in which uh, women of color and poor women in particular are um, suffering at the hands of uh, what is supposed to be a protective agency for children, um, but is manifesting in very different ways if you are black or brown or poor. Um, So essentially, Children's Protective Services and um, Departments of Childhood Welfare can operate in two ways. If they are told um, that a child is being endangered, they can either pursue a criminal case, which usually means that the child is removed from the home and placed into foster care, or they can go through family court, which usually involves non-removal, um, some kind of court monitoring, and parental classes that are required of um, anyone who's considered a guardian of that child. What uh, we're finding is that there are both an, an increase in the amount of people who are calling Child Protective Services, and that we're seeing an increase in the amount of um, uh, children of color and children growing up in low-income circumstances who are being pushed into that first route of removal from the home and the mother is being criminalized. There were, I mean, really disturbing stories, quite frankly, uh, in the article, including one mother who was literally arrested as she, right after she had given birth um, for supposedly endangering her older child um, and was, was placed in jail. 
what the research is also showing is that um, a lot of these children are actually only being placed in foster care for about 30 days. The um, Children's Protective Services folks are finding that there is actually no negligence in the home and the children are being returned. But whether it is two days, five days, 30 days, or 30 years, uh, foster care um, and being removed from your home can be incredibly disruptive to children. So an MIT researcher named Joseph Doyle looked at um, the, the um, impact of foster care on children. And what he found is that there is higher delinquency, higher uh, teen birth rates, um, lower earnings over time, and a higher likelihood of adult imprisonment. So irrespective of the amount of time that a child is being taken out of a home, um, it wreaks havoc on a child's life and on a family's life. Um, and we are finding, and this is why it's being called Jane Crow, we are finding that is, this is happening disproportionately to black women, to brown women, to poor women, who are um, both being told that they have to meet superhuman standards in order to parent their child and are essentially uh, being told that they are not mature enough to make strong parenting choices all at the same time. So it's a really disturbing um, trend that we're seeing, but I'm, I'm glad that it's being brought to light. I think for me as a, as a new parent, I've said this before on the pod, but, but I have so much, I'm in awe of like every single parent out there. Like I cannot even begin to conceive of what it would mean for someone to be doing this on their own. Uh, and so the sort of like, way that that black women in particular continue to sort of be criminalized for having to juggle a, a range of commitments, um, both economic and, and social and maternal, um, and, uh, and, not, and people not being able to fully understand the ways in which poverty and the ways in which uh, the nature of those circumstances kind of present you with a series of impossible tasks. Um, and one of the things that was most difficult for me to, to read about in that article was the way that landlords often use the threat of calling child protective services as a sort of, um, thing that they hang above the heads of the women who, who live in their, um, live in their apartments. And so, you know, and, and the, the extent to which that can be used as, as a pretense for, um, sexual assault or harassment uh, and, and a wide range of other things is, is really disturbing and the sort of power that it gives someone to say, either you do this for me or I will call Child Protective Services and have them remove your children uh, from your custody is, is really unsettling to think about. It also reminds me of you know, how our politics uh, so often um, doesn't live up to the types of values that the politicians pretend to uh, you know, espouse. So when you think about, you know, conservatives and the Republicans, they'll always be talking about, you know, the in theory and this, this sort of uh, value of limited government and not having the government, not having this government intervention, but, you know, they're completely silent about the power of the government to just take away your child, right? Like the most severe thing, one of the most severe things that you can think about, um, they don't have anything to say about that, right? And it, and it shows you how, um, you know, race, really structures your political ideology uh, and has been structuring what political ideology has been in this country for so long. What this makes me 
think of though is from a policy perspective what are the what are the consequences sometimes of well-intentioned things that we've not thought through so what are those unintended consequences and how do we bring them to light and then quickly course correct because i could see i could see people saying you know if children are being abused there should be a process to make sure they're not being abused anymore i think most of us agree that that should exist and that is a pure thought that that comes from a good place. But then it's like, well, here are the 50 examples of where that pure intention actually can lead us astray and do harm in a completely different way. So you take a kid away from one environment with the assumption that them being somewhere else is actually a better thing. And that, that other place, as Brittany talked about, has long lasting negative consequences. Like that wasn't, I'm sure, people's goal when they made CPS. But what does it mean from a policy perspective or as a person in elected office or as somebody who runs an agency to know that the system is actually broken, that like even the best intent is just, it's just not working out the way people thought and not course correct quick enough. So now that we know, you know, we can't fix what we don't know. So now that the research is clear and now that people's lives and the stories are really clear about the consequences, I'm interested in see how quickly the system will self-correct and what pressure needs to happen to make that real. And so my news for the week is that uh, this week it came out that the producers of Game of Thrones were, would be taking on a new project and that new project is a show called Confederate, uh, in which they sort of explore the alternate reality of a world in which uh, the South won the Civil War and, and sort of imagine what the implications of that would be. And, and I, I think like many of us, uh, was a bit unsettled by the premise of the show for a few reasons. But for me, as someone who studies this era and takes it very seriously, uh, I was reading the interview that the producers did with Vulture as a sort of damage control effort after the controversy really picked up on social media. And at one point in the interview, um, the one of the executive producers was saying essentially like, oh, what's that other important battle that wasn't Gettysburg, but like the other one? Uh, and what he was referring to was the Battle of Antietam, which is arguably the most consequential battle of the Civil War. It was a strategic union victory. It gave Lincoln the confidence to go ahead and move forward with the Emancipation Proclamation, which obviously changed the, the face and trajectory of the entire war. And... And for me, you know, that's not something that I expect or that any of us should necessarily expect every lay person to know. But for someone who is doing a show that is on such a, an important topic, on such an important era, with all of the sensitivities that come along with that, um, to not have to come across either, you know, as not having done uh, adequate research on on something that is is really a sort of like surface level piece of understanding about the Civil War was really unsettling. And I know that uh, Michelle and Malcolm Spellman will be involved, uh, some screenwriters who worked on on Empire and other shows, which is good. I think it's good to have as black folks as sort of a creative partners in this. But for me, it's still a sort of strange and and kind of bizarre choice to do this dystopian examination of life post Civil War when most people in this country don't even understand what happened after the Civil War in real life. And it also reminds me that, you know, oppression uh, also takes place in the context of imagination. Uh, and that, you know, there have been so many different uh, times where people have, particularly white people, have sought to sort of reimagine, you know, whatever they apply this reimagination to the Civil War, it's always like, what if the Confederates won? What if, you know, and, and I think very rarely, if ever, do we have, Imagination being applied uh, to think about what would have happened if Reconstruction uh, was allowed to finish, right? What would happen if, right. you know, during Reconstruction we had 2,000 uh, black folks in, in public office, 
2000 across the country, local, That's all real. the way up to the U.S. Senate. Right. Um, and, you know, you know, this is in like 1869, right, 1870, 1871, like all the way back then, it was almost the same level of representation uh, as we have achieved at, in 2017. And so, like, how do we, like, not only bring people back to that moment to understand you know, the, the promise and possibility of that moment uh, and what took it down, but then to take it to the next step and say, like, what if, you know, the North you know, didn't actually, you know, the U.S. military didn't actually, you know, make a deal and leave, right? What if they stayed? What if folks were, you know, black folks were armed along with the military and, and beat back the Klan, right? And continue to, to build um, a, a more equal and more, more equitable United States? Like, where would we be today? Um, and I think that is, like, I would love to watch that. Now, the thing that this makes me think of is... Um it's like, who sits in the room that gets to decide these things? And I have been, over the past year, uh, in touch with more people in Hollywood as we think about systemic issues. And while I think Oscar So White has done incredible work to force this conversation about representation in the media, there's still a lot of work to do around who actually gets to decide. Who who are the people at Netflix and at Amazon and at HBO and all these other places that actually meet with the people who want to make shows and have the money and decide, like, who are those people? Like, I'm not sure, based on what I have heard from people in the industry, that that that, that layer has changed. And I think it leads us to get to a place where today you talk, Clint, about what does it mean to have people who are doing a show that is, you know, controversial is like the kindest way to talk about it, but don't seem to have done the research. And people, uh, in response to the criticism online, they were like, well, the show hasn't even come on yet. Shouldn't you let them buy their time? And they, and it's like, why? Right? Like, you've already told us what the show is supposed to be about. And then the first interview that you did about it didn't actually make it seem that you had thought this through anymore. So we have every right to be frustrated because like you said, Sam, that there are real implications of the way that representation manifests itself. I, again, when I think about the way we have been conditioned to think about what people deserve in prison and reminded of it, but I think about what it means to grow up. You know, I remember being a kid and like, I didn't see any smart people who were black on TV. Like I just didn't, like everything that was, every black person was like a comedian in some form. Like that was what blackness looked like like it was like athletes and comedians and like that has a real impact on the way that people think about themselves in the world and i'm aware of the fact that not everyone you know necessarily has the time and space to sit down and read a 700 page book about reconstruction by by du bois or something like that even though if you do have time you should read black reconstruction by w.e.b du bois which is an incredible book even if you don't have time to read the whole book just read the last chapter which i think is one of the most important uh set of 18 pages in in the his, history of American text, uh, but also there's a great course by David Blight, who's a professor at Yale, that you can listen to or watch online. And also Eric Foner, who's a historian at Columbia University, has a great book uh, called Reconstruction. Um, and there's a long version and there's a short version. Um, and the short version is, is just as um, rigorous and, uh, and in-depth. Now, my news uh, is talking about this uh, wild administration of the man who sits in the White House. So Trump, during the campaign and when he first got into office, he promised to eliminate about 80 percent of all federal regulations. And, uh, you know, one of the Republican sort of talking about talking points for a long time has been this idea that 
the market should be as free as possible. And that means that it should be unregulated, that people just make the choice in their best interest and that the accumulation of all the choices will just lead to good outcomes. It's sort of like the rough argument. Now, I say that today because last Thursday... What this administration did is that they said that they were pulling or suspending 860 pending regulations. Of those, and I'm reading from a Washington Post article, of those, 469 were being completely withdrawn and another 391 were being set aside or reevaluated. And they cover a host of things from the product safety standards for mattresses, flammability when it comes to cigarettes, to what sort of precautions construction firms should be required to take so their workers aren't run over by other vehicles on site. So uh, I bring this up because, you know, during the election, I've said this a lot, during the election, people were like, you know, the federal government doesn't have an impact on your life, that like everything is local, all politics is local, da, da, da. and I think that that sounds cool. I think that it has resonated with people for a long time. I think that that makes the most sense in the context of a functional federal government, though, that you take for granted how the fact that your mattress doesn't blow up on you and that it doesn't just like catch fire is actually because their regulations and their standards. The fact that work sites, uh, construction sites across the country have strict rules, the fact that somebody is checking to make sure the food you eat is safe, like the federal government is actually doing those things. And I wanted to also bring it up to show you that while we are, I won't say we're distracted by the the news that's making the most public splash. But while the crux of the news or the thrust of the news that we see on TV is about Russia, which it should be about at some point, that it's about, you know, Sean Spicer and Kelly and Conway, that what we are not seeing talked about are things like this, that they are quietly changing the fabric of the way that the government is interacting with people's lives in ways that might have consequences for decades and generations to come. These are the moments that I remember, you know, we talk a lot about the ways in which those of us who are already marginalized by society, who most likely did not vote for Trump, um, are affected by this administration. But these are the kinds of stories that remind me that the people who did vote for him are also highly affected. I mean, consumer uh, consumer um, protection, protection agencies and um, worker and labor advocates are very clear in saying that getting rid of these regulations will absolutely hurt the American worker. And that was Trump's base, right? Those were the people that he appealed to every single day saying, I'm here to work for you, despite the fact that most of his clothes are not made in this country. These are the moments when it feels like it's very clear that this guy does not want to be president. He wants to be a dictator because a lot of these regulations are actually um, there to materialize congressional laws, right? So by getting rid of regulations, you're actually trying to dismantle law without going through any kind of legal or legislative process. That should be scary to all of us who believe in democracy. Yeah, I agree with everything that, that's been said. Uh, and I'll just add that something that's been on my mind uh, is always, but especially as of late, is, is climate change. Uh, and there was a New York Magazine article, I think, last week called The Uninhabitable, Uninhabitable Earth that like really shook me. If you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. And it sort of outlines the, uh, the dire possibilities of uh, climate change in a, in a more immediate context than I think we've come to believe, even those of us who, who believe in that climate change is happening. Um, and, and this is just another example of uh, the ways in which that um, process is being exacerbated and, and, becoming closer and closer for us uh, as a result of the irresponsible practices of this administration. 
And that's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Now here's a quick update from Andy Slavitt, who used to be the head of Obamacare for the past few years, about what we need to look for in healthcare this week. Hey Andy, thanks for being here today. It seems like this is a big week in healthcare, knowing that the podcast airs on Tuesday, July 25th. What do we need to be mindful of? Well, there's something called a, a motion to proceed vote, which it takes place at 2.30 today, Tuesday. That's a motion that if it passes by 50 votes, that means later in the week they're going to make a final vote on some bill. Now, what that bill is yet, uh, nobody really knows because uh, Leader McConnell hasn't said yet. Do we know if this is repeal and replace? Do we know if this is just repeal? Do we know if this is Trump care? Or do we really not know anything? Well, what's probably going to happen is you're going to have an, an initial bill, which will be something like the House bill. And then there'll be a series of amendments. One of them would, could be an amendment that looks like the Senate bill. One of them would be an amendment that looks like just a pure repeal bill. And then at the very end of the day, before the final vote, he's going to put something else together that no one quite knows what it's going to look like and, and will not have a CBO score. And that's the, vote, that's the bill that everybody would actually vote on. And when might they vote on the actual bill? Thursday or Friday. And what can people do to influence the vote? Well, really, it's just more of the same. I think if it passes this motion to prevail, to, to uh, proceed, bill on, vote on Tuesday, then people are going to have to be uh, probably as loud as they've ever been because things will start moving really quickly 
these will happen very, very fast. So continuing to reach out to Congress, demonstrate, to call senators, uh, to do everything you can, that is just going to be the name of the game. And what's at stake with all this, Andy? Well, what's at stake at this is the health care of tens of millions of people. It's going to be health care, if this passes, is going to get very expensive for low-income people, for older people. And then for other folks, it just means losing the protections they have, like the protection for pre-existing conditions. And I know that you have been getting stories from people on Twitter about how this might impact them. Is there anyone that you wanted to share? Well, let me just share one email today. Uh, and this relates to um, an email that was put out by Anthony Scaramucci, who's the new communications director at the White House. Scaramucci said that we, don't, we already have universal coverage because people can go to the ER and get medical care. And someone tweeted a response uh, to me and to Scaramucci. That, that's not the way it works because ERs don't administer chemo, perform surgery, provide rehab, and uh, physical therapy services, et cetera. That was from Ben Reynolds. And Ben's exactly right. Um, we don't want to have a, kind of a universal coverage system that waits for people to get sick, which is what Scaramucci is suggesting. Got it. Well, thank you, Andy. Thanks for keeping us posted, and we look forward to getting more updates from you in the future. You got it. Thanks, Ray. And now, my conversation with Betsy Hodges, the current mayor of Minneapolis. Mayor Hodges, I appreciate you being here uh, to have this conversation. We had scheduled this before uh, some of the most recent events with the police chief being asked to resign. I appreciate you being here today and look forward to the conversation. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm I'm glad to get to have a, you know, glad to have a chance to talk about some of these important issues. Now, for those who who don't know much about you, how long have you been mayor and what has your life in politics been like thus far? So I have been mayor for the last four years. I was sworn in January 2014. And then before that, I was eight years on the Minneapolis City Council representing a district in southwest Minneapolis. And you you used to represent the district where the current uh, police shooting happened. Is that correct? Yes, I still represent that district, but I was its council member um, uh, so really focused on that area for eight years. So I know the neighborhood. I know the folks. It's very tight-knit community. Why did you run to be mayor? You know, when I ran to be mayor, um, I mean, what got me into politics is that I really wanted to do good things and, and have a positive impact on people's lives and make positive change. And local government is really a place you can do that. You can you can you know people, they know you, you can get policy done, it's nimble, you can try things. Uh, and it was extraordinary. And I did that as council member. And I realized the agenda that I really wanted to move and take to the next level was an agenda that a mayor had, not just a council member. And that agenda was largely around racial equity and the fact that Minneapolis, um, it's a surprise to people, but Minneapolis has the biggest gaps between white people and people of color and indigenous people of pretty much any community in the country on pretty much any measure you would care to name. Employment, education, housing, health, all of it. And so I ran for mayor because I knew um, I had gotten a lot of good work done representing Southwest Minneapolis that, um, you know, I lived there. It's a, it's a very wealthy, primarily white community. Uh, and, uh, and as someone who's interested in racial justice, having work with 
uh, fellow white people is really important, but I also knew that that equity agenda, I needed to be able to take it citywide. And how do you think you've done these four years? Well, there's a really great body of work that I'm proud of. Um, some really great stuff that we've done that I feel really good about, and there's a long way to go. Um, certainly, I had a lot of lessons to learn, um, and I'm guessing we'll talk about some of those. I had a lot of lessons to learn. Um, but, you know, when I look back on what's happened over the course of the last four years, um, you know, we have earned sick and safe time. We've raised the minimum wage. Uh, I've implemented a cradle-to-care agenda that's about making sure that kids zero to three get um, the healthiest start they can and the, and the best, biggest brains that they can. Um, and there isn't a city in the country or a mayor in the country who's done more to advance the cause of building community trust and public safety uh, and collaborative public safety than I have done. I stand by that statement. And that was hard fought and hard won, but it is something I'm really proud of over the last four years. But we're not done. There's a lot left to do. Now, before we go into some of the issues regarding safety in, in the police, you talked about running for mayor because racial equity was really important to you and that you understood the depth and the breadth of the the gaps in Minneapolis with regard to race. Uh, what What is racial equity to you? I would say it's twofold. Uh, I mean, the goal, I would say, is a world where somebody's race or their current level of income or their current zip code doesn't predict to us what their life outcomes are likely to be in any way. Um, and equity as opposed to equality is making sure that the policies that we put into place, that the programs that we have, that the things that we do are designed to understand that there is a legacy of racism, uh, that our systems were set up in a racialized way, and that to change that, we may have to put more or less resources in some people or some places or some ideas so that we can all reach a goal that we share, which is everybody being able to do well. So uh, what I mean by that, the shorthand for that is equality is everybody gets a pair of shoes. Equity is everybody gets a pair of shoes that fit. Got it. Now let's take that to to talk about safety in the police. So under your tenure as mayor, there have been two high-profile killings by the police in Minneapolis. One was Jamar Clark, who was killed in 2015, and the most recent was Justine Damon, uh, who was recently killed in the past couple weeks. Um, can you? T- I was in Minneapolis for the 4th Precinct protest, uh, and there, the protesters were very critical of how you responded to the 4th Precinct, critical of how you responded to the killing of uh, Jamar Clark, especially now in light of how it seems the response to Justine Damon is just so different. Can you can you just respond to that in general? And then I'll ask some questions about um, Jamar and Justine separately. Well, the big picture is I learned a lot of lessons um, in the wake of Jamar Clark's shooting and the precinct occupation that happened afterward. And uh, I, in the wake of that, I asked the Department of Justice to come in and do an assessment of how did the city respond, uh, including me and my performance. I sat down with dozens of people from you know a 360 degree view, including people I know who were very displeased with me, who had and I asked their advice and their thinking, what went right and what went wrong. And consistently, the feedback I got was about communication, that 
Um, I was working during the occupation day in and day out to make sure that everybody was staying safe, that people could exercise their First Amendment rights and be there and demonstrate to use the principles of 21st century policing to negotiate an, a peaceful ending, uh, to work to, toward that as a goal. And that's what I was doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week for those 18 days. Um, but what I wasn't doing was communicating clearly enough to people that that's what I was doing. And people wanted to know. They wanted to know how was I spending my time. And people wanted to know how I felt. Um, and, you know, there's a gender aspect of that request, but it's also a genuine desire to know that their mayor cares about what's happening. And so I've spent the time since learning those lessons, getting the feedback, metabolizing that feedback, thinking about what does a response need to look like. And I hoped never, ever, ever to have to use that information again. I mean, I worked with Cities United to create a, a strategic guide to officer-involved shootings for cities, right? Somebody was saying to me, well, there's no guidebook for what to do in these instances. It's like, actually, I helped write one. So mayors in the future would know how to respond, not just by, you know, trying to quash protests or arrest everybody, but how do you let people demonstrate and have a peaceful ending? So there are a lot of lessons learned, a lot of things I put together. And unfortunately, I have a situation where I am using every lesson I learned, and I never, ever wanted our city to have to go through this again. And uh, we are. I mean, it's different circumstances. So it looks different this time because people told me they needed it to be different this time. People wanted communication. They wanted to know how I felt. And so I have been uh, spending a lot of my time and energy on three key things. I, one of them is just getting information about what's happening and then sharing that information. Um, some of that is one-on-one -on -one phone calls with key stakeholders, community members, a lot of, you know, talking to neighbors, making sure everybody knows what I know and I get to hear what their concerns and needs are and then be responsive to those. And then, yes, communicating out. Here's how I feel. Um, here's what I've been doing. People said they want to know what I'm doing and how I spend my time. And here's the information that I have that I can share. So it does look different than last time because people told me it needed to look different. Now, what do you say to people who say that it looks different because there was a white woman killed this time and not a black man, that that is actually the thrust of why your response has been different, why your response has been so much more aggressive in 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 some respects, especially with the recent resignation or the, the request to resign with the police chief, that this is actually race at play and that this is... Um, this is actually consistent with the sort of racist undertone that exists in the city of Minneapolis with how accountability is 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 meted out like what do you say to that well i mean race has a role to play in all of this i can't deny that but in terms of my response it's been about having learned the lessons um uh, uh from what people wanted me to learn from uh, jamar clark's death and the occupation of the grounds of the fourth precinct after that and me deploying those lessons every chance I have, every way that I can to be responsive to what the community needs when we've faced a tragedy like this. Do you, have you heard people offer, and I'm only, um, I'm pushing just because I want to understand better, is have you heard people offer this critique that when it was a black man killed that, and I hear you talk about communicating better, that makes sense to me. I hear you talk about listening better. That also makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, there's this, uh, the issue of letting go of the police chief seems like a 
an aggressive action that was taken really quickly because of this recent incident. And people feel like it happened so quickly because it was a white woman in her pajamas, that that is the feeling for so many people. And I think what I hear you saying is that it is not because it was a white woman in pajamas, but it is because you learned from Jamar's killing. Uh, But even in that, people feel like it would not have been, that your learning would have been different if this was another black guy. And I just want to, I want to ask you that clearly because that is how so many people feel. Well, I need to be clear. Every single shooting death in Minneapolis is devastating. Every single one of them. All of them. Um, including officer-involved shootings. It's devastating for the families involved and the loved ones and the friends. It's devastating for me personally. But what I learned in the wake of Jamar Clark's death in 2015 was what Minneapolis needed from me as mayor in difficult times like that. I listened to my community and I learned. I mean, if you're asking a question about the resignation of the police chief, that's a different question. It's not based on one incident. It's based on the sum total of a whole bunch of things over time. And, uh, you know, I give Chief Harteau a lot of credit for having the courage to put in place a lot of things that uh, communities want and need uh, to build trust in the police department. You know, yes, we have body cams on every officer, a powerful tool, clearly not infallible, but we've changed our sanctity of life policy. We've changed our duty to intervene policy. We've added to our de-escalation training. Every officer's had implicit bias training, procedural justice training, crisis intervention training. Uh, We've changed the contract so that we have more flexibility about how we place people in jobs. And I heard from the community that people wanted collaborative uh, strategies, that people wanted to have more say in public safety in their neighborhoods. And I invested over a million dollars in those strategies, including a first of a kind you know, let the community decide what public strategy, what public safety strategies they want to pursue and let them devise those strategies, implement those strategies. And City Hall didn't decide that. And I invested in that over in the north side in Minneapolis and in Little Earth in Minneapolis. And so I give the chief a lot of credit for working with me on a lot of that and for leading a lot of that. But it became clear over the course of the week that for us to be able to continue the work and to move forward, that she would need to step aside. That, um, you know, folks in the community, that folks in the, um, uh, you know, that folks in the community uh, were having questions about her leadership that had been percolating and growing over time and that for us to move forward well, it was an overall state assessment of the MPD and the direction we need to go. So it doesn't mean we're going to slow the pace of our transformation. Um, The person I've nominated for chief is a very strong leader, uh, very known and respected in the community, and has built great relationships over time, Adaria Arredondo. And so the work we, you know, the work we're doing is going to continue until it's done, until justice and dignity and the sanctity of life are reflected in every single MPD encounter, until everyone feels safe and is safe in Minneapolis. And we're not we're not going to waver from that. I'm not wavering from that. Now you didn't you didn't appoint uh, Harto. I think Ry- Mayor Ryback appointed her initially in this role, correct? 
Mayor Ryback appointed her initially, and I reappointed her. Yep. So is there a, re, you know, I've also heard people call for a search to happen with the next police chief, that uh, that one of the pieces of feedback is that people want to be involved in the way safety uh, is conceived of in Minneapolis, and that with you appointing somebody to replace her, that that is not actually listening to what people wanted. What do you say to that? I would say we are at a point at the MPD where the work we have and the work we're doing and in process of doing um, on building community trust, on building justice, uh, we're part of the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, um, that uh, Rondo, um, Acting Chief Arredondo, has been at the heart and the center and the heart of all that work and that we need consistency and leadership at a time when we're when we're facing such tragedy and that he is a known element. People know him. People have worked with him. They've worked successfully with him. Um, and we need to move forward together. Now, now that he's acting chief, will, will you have a national search for a new chief? Uh I, I said yesterday my intention is to put his name forward to be the police chief to fill out the rest of Janae Harto's term, which is about 18 months. Okay. Um, now, is there, there, there's been a lot of speculation about the most recent killing, if not only because of the race uh, factor and the many questions that remain. The officer, I think, still has not given a statement. Is that correct? Or has, has he given a statement? He, not that I know of. Yep, so it hasn't given a statement yet. There are a lot of questions and maybe another witness or not. Is there an aspect of the case that you think is not uh, being told that you would like to tell us? Um, well, you know, we had an independent investigation immediately. The scene was frozen until the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension investigators could get there and, and, and investigate it because we've had a policy since 2014 that the Minneapolis Police Department does not investigate its own critical incidents like this. We just, that's, you know, common practice now. It was a little controversial when we first introduced the concept. Um, and so I don't have more information about the investigation than anybody else has. I am just as disturbed and heartbroken and confused and baffled about the situation as everyone is. Um, you know, uh, Officer Noor has the, he doesn't have to give a statement if he doesn't choose to. Uh, of course, I wish he would. Um, but he, he he doesn't have to. His partner has given a statement that, that just said, basically, I was sitting there and uh, we were in the squad in the alley and uh, uh, we heard a loud noise. We're startled by a loud noise. And I looked over and I saw someone approach and then I saw a loud flash or, you know, I saw a loud flash and I looked over at my partner and realized he'd shot his gun. I think we all want more. I have the same questions everyone does. I think we all want answers to those questions about what exactly happened. Now, I listened to the uh, the press conference that you did where you announced uh, Harto's resignation. And I heard the protesters asking for your, your resignation in that moment. Uh, what is your response to people asking you to resign in this moment? Well, you know, it's been a really challenging week for our city, a really challenging few years for our city, as it should be. Um, I share people's frustration about the change of pace, you know, about the about the pace of change in policing, uh, about building community trust. Um, I'm not going to offer my resignation, but my, my pledge as mayor is to continue doing this work moving forward. And I am happy, as always, 
to sit down with community members who want to have a genuine conversation about what that looks like. And how would you describe the state of race relations in Minneapolis uh, since you've been elected? Uh, you said you, you ran on an equity framework. Um, how would you describe it today? Well, there are a lot of uncomfortable people. So, um, so I think that's actually a good sign that we're making some of the changes that people need. There are a lot of white people um, and, and um, you know, people of middle income and higher income people, regardless of race, who are a little more uncomfortable than they used to be um, because you know, change is happening. I mean, we have unacceptable disparities in our city between white people and people of color when it comes to education, employment, um, housing, health. We have real rifts between police and community. That remains true. I think that remains true in every city in the country. Um, and, and it is about us, uh, and whether we like it or not, uh, race and racism are systems that we are part of. And it's, and this is a message often to white people in every state of the city address I've given, I think all of them and the budget addresses I give, I specifically use part of those speeches to address my fellow white people directly, um, to talk about these issues directly because, um, I think in the world, and certainly in Minneapolis, uh, talk about equity, white people, somehow we are confused enough by racism to think that that conversation isn't about us and that the results of equity are are not for us that they that it takes something away from us you know if you're standing if you're standing still in an elevator and the one from the floor down starts coming up towards you you don't necessarily think that elevator's moving up you think you're falling and so really being explicit with white people that there's something in this for us that the world is better for us if we make sure uh, that people of color are succeeding and thriving and 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 leading uh, and and part of everything. Um, that there's something in it for us, and you know, it's a it's a. I believe that's work that white people that we get to do and and have to do with one another. It is a peculiar feature of racism that white people expect people of color to lead us out of it, and white people get to lead white people out of it as well. Our leadership in this work is incredibly important, and I've done my best to provide that um, as well. And that's what I was doing as council member. It's what I do as mayor. It's it's been um, the goal of my adult life, and so. The state of race relations in Minneapolis is we have unacceptable disparities, and right now, uh, we, uh, under my leadership, we have been not just tinkering around the edges. We've actually been working to change the DNA of how the city works so that every person can contribute to and benefit from our prosperity and growth, that every single person, um, especially people of color and indigenous people, can know um, that this city is of, by, and for them, whatever that looks like. And so much of that is community-generated and community-led, and I've, I've, I've tried to support um, you know, community and community voices and community-led initiatives, as well as pull the levers that I have at City Hall to make that real and true. Now, I've seen interviews where you've spoken about your sobriety, battles with addiction, and more recently, I've read that you have talked about being a survivor of sexual assault. What made you open up and talk about these things in a more public way? Well, I've, you know, with my sobriety in particular, it, there wasn't a point at which I decided to open up about it. It's just I never didn't talk about it. Um, that it has just been part of my entire adult life. Um, 
and and how much that has brought me. What I was what I was what I was less open about and was kept more personal was that I am a survivor of childhood sexual assault. Um, you know, adults unrelated to me. It wasn't family. Um, over the course of years, um, uh, I was abused by many uh, many times by by people. Um, you know, I realized that. I wanted other survivors to know that they could heal as I have. I was a victim at the time. I am a survivor now. And I want people to know that there is another side of the healing, that it is possible to heal from anything. And I promise that to people from the bottom of my heart, um, that it is possible to heal. And I also wanted to break the habit of keeping my distance. That was a protective instinct that was useful when I was younger. Um, I really deeply believed that uh, and had reason to believe that if I told people what was happening, that it would jeopardize people that I loved and, and things that I loved. And so I learned the habit of just not sharing about that and keeping my distance, that if I showed too much that I cared about something or someone, that it might jeopardize them. And that's a habit that no longer serves me as an adult and it's no longer needed. And I wanted people to see what really drives me. I wanted, I wanted, you know, I wanted people to see and you know, if people perceive that there's a difference between what they're seeing and what they're sensing of you, they're going to fill in that gap with whatever is at hand to them. And sometimes that is what they fill out with is gendered and sometimes it's just made up and sometimes it's just a, a distance of their own. But whatever it was, I wanted to close that distance myself so that I could be a, a more effective person in the world, but mostly because I want other survivors to know that it is possible to heal and have a big life afterward or any kind of life that you want. And um, I don't think there's any place I go that someone doesn't walk up to me and quietly share with me that they are a survivor or someone that they love is a survivor and they thank me for having told my story because it makes it more possible for them to tell theirs in some cases or because it just gives them hope that they or their loved one has a brighter future ahead. That makes sense. You know, both of my parents were addicted to drugs, and in so many ways, I grew up in a community of recovery, and uh, what you just said resonates with me. And I do think that you using your platform to talk about this publicly has invited more people into the conversation who also have dealt with trauma in a host of ways, but haven't had the language. Um, so that is, I, I appreciate you being open to talk about the trauma that you faced, uh, understanding that this helps other people talk about it. Do you get angry about uh, or frustrated with these incidents? Like, how does that play into the way that you think you can show your anger? I know I've read a lot about uh, women who are leaders in the city, and you talked about this a little bit, that there's a gender-based aspect to the way people expect your emotions to register publicly. And do you feel like that is at play uh, with the latest uh, incident of police violence, the way that people are looking at you in this moment? Uh, like, how does your anger translate publicly or your frustration? I heard you say that you are just as frustrated as other people, but I'd love to hear you talk about what it what it is like as a, a woman who is leading a major city in America and dealing with this as a leader. Uh, I'm sitting on the other end of the microphone, kind of smiling to myself because where where does one start with that? I, you know, I, I, I uh, I'm I'm almost at a loss at about how to talk about it. I I don't see the call for um, displays of emotion being made toward my colleagues who are men um, in situations similar to this. 
Um, but that said, I understand that for people, um, whether it's 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 gendered or not, uh, people express that it was very important to them that I show how I feel. And one of the benefits of being more open about my history has been it's made it far more possible to, for me to show my feelings. And so I I I do that, and that's you know, and I think it it people have thanked me for it because. Um, Oh my God, you know, if, if people are getting shot in my city and this, I feel this way when it's, uh, you know, it's the shooting that I get the text about it two in the morning because one person shot one, another person outside, you know, after an altercation on the street, or if it's, you know, the text I got, uh, you know, or not the text, the call that I got last week saying an officer has shot a woman. It's awful and devastating and heartbreaking and when the conditions or the context and the circumstances are 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 just so fraught and baffling um you know i i'm a human being i i share that uh that that grief and that anger and that um uh that quest for answers and i am also the mayor of the city and it is my job in that moment to make decisions based on what makes sense for the city moving forward, not based on how I feel. And so uh, I can share those feelings, but I can't I can't govern based on them. How did you find out that Jamar got killed and that Justine was killed? How do you how is mayor are you notified of these things? Uh, I found out Justine was killed because Rondo called me within an hour. And the one and Jamar? Um, that I got a call from a ch- the chief that morning. Uh, and in the after action report, they talk about that. And one of the reasons I got the call within an hour is because I needed to get that call within an hour when Jamar was shot as well. And with the barricade, I talked to some, some protesters uh, recently and, uh, in the barricade, for those of you that don't know, there's a barricade around the fourth precinct, uh, which is a police station in Minneapolis, um, that was a site of or the sort of ground zero for the protests around Jamar Clark is people felt like you uh, sort of bulldozed that site and unexpectedly and that people had planned to stay much longer. What is your response to people who criticize the way that you uh, ended the sit-in or the barricade there at the fourth precinct? Well, you know, we were doing something a city had never done before, a mayor had never done before, and I don't know that they've done since, that um, we were trying, I was trying to negotiate a peaceful ending to the occupation. And um, uh, that's why it was 18 days long. You know, certainly I was getting advice or, or what other mayors have done is you just go in and arrest people and you have done with it. Um uh, and I certainly wasn't going to do that. And we were doing our best to use the, you know, the principles of, of forward thinking policing um, uh, every day to say, you know, what can we do to help bring a peaceful resolution here? Um, when it became clear that the negotiations weren't going to weren't going to result in people voluntarily leaving, because, as you said, people just wanted to stay. Um, but that that was very difficult on the neighborhood. Um, I did my best to signal to people, okay, it's 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 time to end. Um, neighbors were were really clear. Um, response times for police calls were going up. Be- 
because the main thoroughfare in North Minneapolis was blocked off. Uh, there was a, a, you know, there was a whole host of reasons that meant we couldn't just have an indefinitely long occupation um, on the grounds of the fourth precinct and the street and the road in front of it. And so, um, you know, the fire chief went out and said, "You got to put the fires out." You know, you know, this is, you know, the smoke's getting into the 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 building, the senior housing that's up the street. We had to reroute buses, and so seniors were having you know, some of whom had disabilities were having to walk five extra blocks to catch their bus, um, that it wasn't, it wasn't something that could stay long-term. And so, um, in the end, we, we did our best to do it at a time and, and, and as best we could with folks. Um, and I, and up until that point, I was doing my best to negotiate a strategy where, where folks would, would, um, we'd be able to end it voluntarily. Now, the last couple of questions I'll ask is, I know you've been out on the forefront about being about sanctuary cities and the importance of that. Uh, I'd love to know what your take as a mayor of a major city in America. What is your take on the Trump presidency? <laughs> I gave a speech in April called One Minneapolis in the Time of Trump. And in you can look it up. And in that speech, I am very clear that he has an agenda that's going after people in cities and that we have to be very strong uh, in our stance, standing with every member of our community, um, particularly immigrants and Muslims and um, GLBTQ people and trans people, especially trans kids, um, uh, women, people with disabilities, that he has all of us in his sights and um, we have to speak out as loudly as we can, as early as we can, when our democracy is under threat like that. But, you know, Trump's agenda toward us, toward people in cities, is, you know, it's a very far right-wing version of conservatism that we've been seeing for a long time. What really distinguishes Donald Trump is his open, obvious agenda of suppression and quelling of dissent. He doesn't want artists to make art. He doesn't want voters to vote. He doesn't want demonstrators to, to, to use their First Amendment rights. He doesn't want journalists to report. And that, you know, is striking a blow at our democracy that is, that is very pernicious and very vicious. Now, people don't know that, uh, that Minneapolis is one of the largest communities of Somalians outside of uh, Somalia in the United States, in that it's also a considerable Hmong population in Minneapolis and a large indigenous population. Uh, what would your leadership look like for those communities if you were elected for the next four years? Well, you know, I'm proud. Uh, in some ways, it'll look like it's been looking to be part of those communities, in those communities, seeking advice and counsel from those communities, um, investing in those communities in ways that they have asked and that they need, working with them, um, uh, and and having support there and making very visible um, the needs of our indigenous folks and our Somali folks and you know, all of that, that will continue, but also knowing that in the time of Trump, these are communities who are more under fire from the federal government than they've been in almost a generation. Um, and to make sure I'm standing with them, being responsive to their needs, you know, for example, already um, for folks who are immigrants, you know, I added even more money this year to the budget to make sure that any gaps people were having in services we could fill in, that we could support the work of people who are trying to help people either prevent deportation or, or handle 
um, the fact that they were in the process of being deported. Um, we have the first trans equity council um, in the country, and we I have already invested in the recommendations um, of how we build out our city buildings um, I hate that we have to talk about bathrooms, but we do, and that's important. It's a request that was made uh, from the trans uh, transgender folks in the community and, and gender nonconforming folks, and we are doing that at the city. That work would continue. Um, you know, we are we are rewriting our memorandum of understanding with our indigenous communities. My first, you know, I in my first year as mayor, I we have seven more than seven urban Indian offices in Minneapolis, and those are those are embassies. Right, they are sovereign nations, and so I made some ambassadorial visits to each one of those and strengthened that work, and then use that moving forward. You know, uh, here's what what needs to be in the budget. Here's what is in the budget. Um, how do we move forward together? And for Somali folks who are so under fire, I mean, they are they are immigrants and they are Muslim and they are Afri- of African descent and African American uh, in this country right now. Um, making sure to stand firm and strong in the face of of anything that's coming their way, um, and especially you know, including right now, uh, it's ridiculous that an entire group of people is being held responsible for the actions of one member of their community. You know, in this moment, um, there are a lot of people who've lost hope, right? People who are frustrated by the the national political climate, people who. Um, who have been out in the streets for a long time about police violence and the police continue to kill people in cities like Minneapolis and Baltimore and St. Louis. What do you tell those people? What is your response to them when they say, like, I've worked really hard and it still hasn't changed. I've pushed, I've voted, I've knocked on doors and it's, America still looks the way that it looked before all of those things. What do you say to them? I would say a couple of things. Um, it doesn't look exactly the same. That, uh, you know, the arc of justice, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice, but that's because we're pulling on it. And so every bit of work that everybody has done has gotten us to this place of there has been change. Um, uh, uh, You know, I can see the changes that have happened, at least in my city. Um, There hasn't been enough. And I understand people's frustration and the distance we have, the distance there is between where we are and where we have to go is still bigger than the distance between where we are and where we were. That doesn't mean change hasn't happened, but there is still a long way to go, and I understand I understand that. Um, but everything that people have done all the time, all the advocacy work, as, as an elected official, I can tell you that organizing works and advocacy matters, and that there are changes that have happened in Minneapolis because of it. Because of it, it's created space for me to be able to put forward policy that would not have passed otherwise, I can tell you that much that it matters the work that people have done and continue to do. And that, um, you know, I, I, I have the benefit of living a miracle every day that given who I am and, and given my genetics and given the fact that I'm an alcoholic, I should be drinking every day. And every day that I don't drink, I know there are miracles in the world. And we are working toward these miracles together. And the miracle of my sobriety didn't happen with me by myself. And the miracle and and the and the certainty of justice is not is going to happen because we're going to do it together. Well, I appreciate you making time uh, to talk to me and talk to us about these issues, and I will stay tuned with your race that comes up in November, and uh, we consider you a friend of the pod. 
Thank you so much, DeRay. And I really appreciate the work that you do, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate you taking the time with me. Cool. Thanks so much. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of living like a sardine? We know a hotel where you can enjoy the open ocean. Book hotels with ocean views in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere. And now my conversation with Tracy Ellis Ross, an incredible actress who currently stars in the hit TV show Blackish, for which she won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Television Series, Musical, or Comedy. She's been awarded throughout her career, and I'm excited to talk to her today. Hi, Tracy Ellis Ross. Hi, Jeremy McCassin. It is great to have you on Pod Save the People. I feel like this is like a dream come true. <laughs> oh, for First me. of all, because we're friends. Second of all, because I love this podcast. Third of all, because it's like me and you get to dance in, in conversation. I love it. And invite people in. Yeah, exactly. You are an actress. I'm an actress. And a comedian. Yeah, a comedic actress. A comedic actress. I've never done stand-up. Okay. Mm-hmm. When did you start identifying as an actress? That's a really good question. Um, My career professionally started, I would imagine when I started auditioning in New York, I started calling myself an actress. But, you know, I studied theater at Brown. Um, I was a a theater concentrator, which is what we called it. I went to Brown University, (laughs) graduated in 94. And I remember when I discovered acting, I don't know that at that moment I decided that I was an actor, but I realized it was um, that it really fit me. Um, It was like the first time I realized I could use all of the parts of myself, including my insecurities, um, my own history, um, my fantasies, um, the things I didn't like about myself and did like about myself, like they all got to be utilized in a very full way. And it made me come alive because I used to be very shy, even though I had a big person. Yeah, I had. Well, I still it's I'm not shy, but I have a, a. a big part of myself that I, that's just really mine, you know? And um, I didn't know how to balance those two things. And I didn't know how to, the difference between like what is sacred and what is private and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a big personality, which honestly does the same thing as being shy. It keeps people at a distance. Um, And so when I discovered acting in college, um, I don't know, it like, I came alive in a way. Um, And it was interesting. My mom said to me, which I would have, Never known, but my mom, you know, your mom knows, sees things about her kid, your kids that you wouldn't see of yourself. But when I was modeling, she said it was when my, I started to come alive as myself because, um, I, she said, I started like, I I had a captive audience. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. They're watching. Yeah. The photographers were like, could you try and be a little sexier? And I was like, but I've got this story. I want to tell you all about, listen. So when I was young, I (laughs) I was like, does that make you laugh? Let me tell you more. (laughs) When did you start modeling? 
That I did in high school. I loved fashion. I loved clothes. I loved magazines. And um, so I thought that meant I wanted to model. I was obsessed with Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, and all of them, those supermodels of the 90s. And um, I signed with Wilhelmina Modeling Agency, and I was flying around the world, and, and not not in a big way, in a small way. <laughs> and, uh, like, I took one trip. And... Um, <laughs> In a very small way. In a very small way. It was, I mean, it was big. I went to like a special place. It was Amsterdam, but nonetheless. And then my 18th birthday, I did a show with my mom. I did a Terry Mugler show, that big show that he's known for. But anyway, I'm bouncing around, but I am giving you the history of the thread of sort of how I started to find myself and take the bigness of my personality and actually connect it to my humanity. Um, and, and, um, and my mom said that I started to come alive when I started modeling. She started to see the Tracy that I am now. I love it. And talking about your mom, I met your mom at your birthday party. You did. And what is it like to be— See, the, we're real friends, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to be the daughter of somebody who has meant so much to so many people? Hmm. Is that—like, uh, how do you process that? Is that a responsibility? Is it a weight? It is, is it neither— um, I think it's all of the above. Um, I don't think it's a weight at all. Uh, I feel very blessed and very grateful. All those people that loved my mom um, gave uh, um, all the opportunity that I have in my life and the abundance that my mom's career afforded her children is because of the connection that she had with all those people that listened to her music, you know, Um so I've always felt like people come up to me in really inopportune moments. I have some really funny stories. I remember I was changing at the gym in, at Equinox or Equinox in New York, like early 90s or something. And I was like literally was late for my class and had stripped down and was at that point when I had not a f- stitch of clothing on, <laughs> not an underwear, not a nothing. And this woman said, oh, my God, can I tell you a story? But I have always felt like, I get it. This might be the closest that she's going to get to my mom to share the way her heart was touched by my mother. And so I stood there stalking. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I think I was maybe just a little bit too generous with my time and myself. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think like, oh. I, I could have grabbed a towel. But so I've never quite felt it as a burden. Um, I have really, I feel very humbled by what I've seen my mother's career do, what I saw her do, I feel very clear that her career and the choices that she made not only personally made it able, made like the world, uh, made it possible for me to be here on this planet, but my career and what I'm doing, she was part of the paving of that and the opening of that space. So um, in that sense, I feel very humbled um, to be her child. As, on the personal tip, um, you know, my mom's a really great mom. <laughs> and I really like her. And I really admire her. And I'm sometimes blown away by what, not sometimes, like, if you think about it, you're like, huh? How is that possible? Did you grow up with, like, concerts in the house? Not in the house. In the the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> like, going to concerts. The worst people to go to one of my mom's shows with, still, to this day, is one of her children or all of us. Because you will not hear my mom sing. <laughs> I love it. You won't catch a word of what she's saying because we're so busy singing every word and every ooh and every ah. I have dances to most songs. Um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. We have a dance we used to do on stage. Um, you know, the back entrances through kitchens and 
and whatever was a part of my childhood, quick change booths, um, you know, people banging on the car as we were leaving and and, uh, leaving her shows and leaving her job. Um, And with it came a certain certain amount of things like, um, you know, my mom couldn't just go school shopping with me. Um, certain choices. I remember graduating from college. That I was a, I was not ready to graduate. I was very scared. I was very sad. I was very blue. There were a lot of tears for me. And I really needed my mommy. And there was paparazzi there. Um, and I remember it was uncomfortable, you know, because I really just needed my mom. And um, she was trying to be there for me. And she was busy trying to balance the other stuff, you know, so there's that too. But I have always felt like I grew up in my mother's embrace, not her shadow in any way, shape or form. Um, She's a very special woman um, that the Diana Ross of it is sort of the tip of the iceberg um, for the kind of lady that she is. And what does it mean now that you are somebody that so many people look up to? (laughs) Your, uh, whether it is your commitments to talk about uh, or use your platform to show race on mm-hmm. shows like Blackish or what it meant for so many black women with you on Girlfriends or mm-hmm. what does it still mean? Or that, that moment you, when I won the Golden Globe and or, what that meant. Or that, 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 was, that was a big... Or that small minor detail when you won this huge award. But uh, you know what's so interesting is it, it... Yes, I did. I won the award. That was a really great moment and I like winning and I like that moment. It was really fun. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I like winning. Okay, I did. I like winning. I liked winning in Dodgeball. <laughs> and you I just liked got nominated for? For an, uh, my second Emmy. Yes. Second Emmy nomination. <laughs> no small thing. No yeah. small thing. But I have to be completely honest when I say that so often as I have watched um, other women succeed, I have felt like every time one of us succeeds, I succeed. I've always felt like that. I've always felt like there's enough sun for all of us. I was raised that way, and I really believe that. There's enough sand for all of us, and there's not enough sun for all of us. So there was something in the experience of winning that Golden Globe that really felt like it wasn't just mine. Um, I felt like I was standing in that moment on the shoulders of so many that came before me and also shoulder to shoulder with so many that stand and make it possible in the, in the moment that we're in. Um, and the magnitude of the historical context of that moment and what it meant about our industry, what it meant about all of us, not just in terms of what we as black women are thinking in that moment, but um, what others need to be thinking about that moment and what that means about the stories that we're telling and what we're acknowledging and what we're um, recognizing and, and giving props to. Um, it just... It, it was fun to win personally, but it felt like so much more that it doesn't feel like I won. It feels like we won, you That's know? Cool. Yeah. Do you find out about the nominations when we all do, or do you get like a secret text message? No, it's before? right when you do. <laughs> right when everybody does. My little, my little insides were like dying. I sat in meditation instead of watching the live feed because I was too nervous. Wow. That's sort of wild. Well, how do you choose, how did, what was your first show where you were like, I'm an actress? Like the first show that you were like, okay, this is like a real... I did an like, NBC movie of the week. Yeah, called Sins of Silence. I don't think I saw that one. Yeah, you probably didn't. <laughs> you probably didn't. I played um, a rape survivor who okay. was a former track star, um, like um, Olympic track star, um, whose uh, rapist had been someone that she knew. Okay. And he was her coach. And uh, my character had Casey King had not spoken up about it. And then there was another young track athlete um, that was 
She was worried uh, she had had the same thing happen, and they came to Casey King to see if she would speak up. And Casey was afraid to, but then she finally did. And that was, I I think in that moment, um, I was like, all right, I'm acting. There we go. (laughs) I went to Canada. We shot it in Canada. And um, it was not an easy one. And then when I went from that to Lyricist Lounge, I mean, you know, I've honestly worked. Lyricist Lounge. Don't you remember that? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Me and Most Deaf. I, like, rhymed with Most Deaf. I, I, like, there were a couple bars I haven't thought about Lyricist Lounge in a long time. Yeah, I was very serious. I was a rapping character gal. Do you remember? Where are all my ziggas at? Where are all my ziggas at? Hootie hoo! I haven't thought about Lyricist Lounge. Yeah. Tracy, wow. (laughs) How do you, what's the process you go through to choose your, so like from Sins of Silence to Lyricist Lounge, Girlfriends, Blackish, like, well, you know, you could, you could be a reality TV star or something. Like you could do less meaningful things. Hmm. Well, I will say this. I I was very blessed at the beginning because the truth is that in the beginning of my career, there wasn't a lot of choice involved. It was being chosen. And I've never thought about it this way, but I think that's part of the um, evolution that's happened within my own life as well. Um, Moving um, in a, a empowered sense from the idea of waiting to be chosen to being the person who chooses. And I think that's a lot of what I talk you about. preach. But, but it's a lot of what I talk about um, because as women, culturally, we are trained in the, you know, patriarchy steeps us in this idea um, that women are to see themselves through other people's eyes, you know, and as a result, you are, you are waiting to be chosen in so many different ways. And, um, I really love to push up against the status quo and sort of have a curiosity about that and say, but why? And I have to say that is a lot of what I come from in my mom. My mom was never like played into the rules of what was there. And as I've gotten older, I've been able to sort of unpack and get informed about what those cultural norms are that are steeped in racism, sexism, patriarchy, like all of those different rape culture, like all of those different things that kind of inform a mindset. So in the beginning of my career, it was very much about, you know, auditioning for whatever was put in front of me. And I did learn a lot that way. I became ungreen and learned how to take the woman that I was in front of my mirror in my bedroom and do that in front of people um, with the freedom and like abandon that I really wanted to. Um, And then as my career progressed after Lyricist Lounge and slowly, I mean, it's only recently that I have been able to make clear choices, but I can Mm. tell you what I respond to in material. There's a really simple thing that happens for me when I read something. Uh, If I start saying my lines out loud when I'm reading a script, I know that I have a personal connection or there's something I want to live through. There's a part of me that needs to speak through that character. As an actress, I feel that my job is not to tell responsible stories, but to share humanity. And I believe that there is a humanity and a truth in all kinds of stories, even stories that make me cringe. What's the difference between responsible stories and humanity? Well, I think, you know, there's this idea that, like, um, we're not, uh, especially with the limited amount of images that there are for people of color um, and other non-white, I should just say, um, even in terms of gender, um, you know, there's this, this kind of responsibility to tell the right story to tell the story that you want presented as opposed to the one that's always presented. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that there's, like, a nuanced 
difference in there between not necessarily having to tell the external right or correct story, but instead sharing an honesty and a truth about the human experience. And, um, and that in that we find connection with each other and in that we are revealed as human beings. And I think that's a lot of what racism has attempted to do mm-hmm. is like dehumanize like, you know, you're not human enough to want those things or God forbid you as a woman should have the responsibility of pride or, you know, whatever those things are, like all, all of that strange messaging that sometimes I don't even know if people know where they get it from. Did you read your lines out loud for Girlfriends and Blackish? Yes, sir. But are there moments that you're like, these were important moments either for the culture, society, or you personally? There've been quite a few. In all honesty, for me on Blackish, um, the the most uh, vocal narrative about the show is about race, but there is an underlying narrative around um, selfhood for my character and being a very full woman that I find incredibly interesting, um, and that I think is very new for television. Um, and so there were a couple of episodes. One episode, like, un, like I, it was so unexpected. I was like, oh, yeah, this is fucking great. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it started through the lens of Dre's gay sister was marrying a woman and who was going to take whose name. So that's what you think the story is going to be about. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I didn't take your name, Dre. So why do you think... She should take her, you know, like, maybe that's not, like, really the question. Like, who really cares? And he was like, you didn't take my name? He's like, what are you talking about? And so we then reveal that they both have the same last name. They were both born Johnson. (laughs) And in Bo's mind, she didn't take his name. And it was not a big deal. And it brought up this idea of feminism. And I love that it was sort of introduced through the lens of Bo, not through his sister, who is like the traditional way that you would think that would be introduced. Um, And we got to explore that through this couple in a way that I hadn't seen done on television. Did you know the police brutality uh, episode was going to happen before it happened? Yes, I knew, but I didn't know how they were going to unfold it. Okay. Same thing with the N-word episode. Yeah. I knew we were doing an N-word episode. I had no idea that our youngest adorable little bubble, like that little munchkin of a cutie pie, was going to be the one who, say, who said the word. Like, I didn't know that. And I thought that was amazing. <laughs> like, that was so funny to me. The police brutality speech, like that whole moment was incredible. That was really uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. um, because my character did not have my voice. Tracy's voice. What do you mean? I had a lot more to say. Okay. Tracy had a lot more to say. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Um, and I had to play a role um, that was very important in that episode um, in the context of their relationship, in the context of the show, and in the context of pushing that story forward in the correct way where um, you have to leave the audience space to have their feelings. Mm-hmm. All the characters can't take up all the air in the room. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. What is it like to be an incredible actress? Oh, God, that's uh, so uncomfortable. What okay. is it like to be mm. an actress? Okay, thank moment, you. Uh-huh. On a successful show mm. that is continues to be nominated for awards. That I feel proud of, yeah. That you're proud of. Mm. Uh, in the context of such political right Ooh. and turmoil, like, what do you say to people who say, stay in your lane, that, like, this is not your <laughs> You know what's my favorite thing in the world? Stay in your lane is so close to stay in your place, isn't it? It is very close. It really is. And I think it's one of the ways that people try and take power from others. Um, uh, who's to say what my name, my lane, my place, or my role, or my job, or my work, or my message, or my life should be other than me? No one should tell me what I should do with my uterus. No one should tell me what I should do with my voice. And I think that stay in your place is very similar to please stay silent. And we know what silence does does not save us. No, it does not. And it's very scary and it takes a lot of courage. And I feel like as a person who does have a platform and who does have a voice and is not afraid to use it in the ways and the places that I feel passionate about. What are some issues that are top of mind for you? I think the biggest like thing for me is this idea of freedom and equality and what that really means. I mean, you can put the title of feminist on it you can there's a lot of different things but really it's an idea of equality um and the having space to choose you know and and how that affects one personally you know um i am still discovering what areas i want to lean into and learn more about and we talk about this idea of equality being everybody gets the same thing and equity being people get what they deserve. Okay, tell me more about and, this, right, please. Say set, that again. Hold on. Say it again. Uh, I need to hear that. Equality is people get the same thing mm-hmm. and equity is people get what they deserve. So I want equality. You want equity. Do I? Most things about social justice are issues of equity. So you think about Wait, like, I need to understand this. Okay, say can you say it one more time for me? You think about things like uh funding for school systems. Mm-hmm. So we actually don't need them all to get the same amount of funding. We know that like educating kids in poverty, educating kids with special uh, special needs like costs more, mm-hmm. right? Right. And we want those kids to get what they deserve, which is not a matter but of But doesn't that get dicey around somebody determining what you deserve cuz what couldn't somebody easily say well, you don't deserve that. Or is that is that not a part of it? You know, I mean, that's what people are doing now. Is that like, okay. we, the the fight for equality sometimes masks the need for equity because we all are starting from the same place. If we were all starting from the same place, then equality okay. for everything would be like, Agreed. Amazing. Okay, so I, so noted, Tracy learned something new. No, is everybody else yeah, taking notes? Yeah, yeah, equity. Like, so I want um, equity and freedom. Does that still work? Yeah. <laughs> freedom always works. Yeah. Okay. But this thing about equity is an interesting, it's one of the, when we talk about disparities and outcomes, disparities and in inputs, that is almost always like an equity conversation, mm-hmm. pushing people to say like, no, a wrong happened here in this way that was like specific. And, and it did. now requires yep. a balance in order to get the equity. Can we 
attempt, can we find a different word other than deserve? Yeah. Because I feel like that word is tough. Yeah. Because it puts the the choice of who deserves what in someone's hands. Yeah, I'm, we should do it. We should figure it out. I feel like we should come up with a different word for that part of it. I mean, you know, I don't know what's happening in my life right now, but it's very exciting. Because, like, even the gender conversation, I am so in love with it. Because... I like just feel like I have a lot to learn. Fluidity, the conversation Gen- about like the conversation about gender fluidity and um, that there are different terms that gender. Like I don't know. I literally have like a chart in my phone because it is not something that I was raised with in like terms cis, of that language. Trans, cis, non-binary, um, the like non-gender conforming. All all of that. That it is so new to me. But every time I learn something more, I think to myself, "Oh my god, freedom." Right. So because in the way I, you know, the the time period when I was raised, you were a boy or you were a girl. Do you know what I mean? And so to take that assumption off of that lens and the idea of freedom around that and that it allows people a choice for themselves, I find beyond exciting and that I don't understand it or know it all makes me even more excited. Yeah, yeah it, it is. Interesting, too, because we're reminded that, like, people made this up. Like, people did this, right? I know. And people can, like, undo it, and we can transform it, and we can push, and that we can still change the world, that we don't have to accept the world the way it is just because it is this world. It's it's very important. And it's the same way I feel about um, this idea of marriage and children as a woman and the amount of machinery, cultural machinery, that, like— really pushes women that that is your like girls and there's nothing wrong with dreaming of your wedding that you must get married and but you that's how you kids. find happiness and people say to you i mean i'm 44 but the, the, the amount of things the strangest people put their hand on their wrist like it's a watch like you better get on it i'm like what like i didn't think about it like what are you doing or like i mean sometimes i'm like please get out of my uterus like what are you doing um or have you not found anyone yet I mean, you're just like. <laughs> As if that's the only proxy for your happiness. Yeah. And I I don't think that's true. And or to have a child is what gives your life meaning or any of those things. I'm like, is that true? I and, and again, I don't have the answers to any of those questions. But this idea that there's like a machine in place that keeps you in place yeah. is it doesn't work for me. Um, And it's the same thing I feel about gender, the same thing I feel about somebody saying as an actor, you should stay in your lane. Um, It's like, really? Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the course of your career that has stayed with you? Before you answer the question, Mm -hmm. I will remind you that the very first exchange we ever had was about you hand-washing your own clothes. Yeah, it's very important. (laughs) We had a whole text dialogue about it. Listen, my mom told me— my yes, Yes, my mom told me at a very young age, she said, you can spend a lot of money on clothes. You can spend money on clothes. You can spend your money on what you want to spend it on. But if you are going to buy expensive things, you need to take care of them. And Is she who taught you how to hand wash? Probably. <laughs> if you want to know the truth. Do you still hand wash your clothes? Yes, sir. There's certain things that I will literally make in a little pile it. and like fold them up gently on the little chair at the bottom of my bed and save them for that Sunday at some point when I have time to get in there and hand wash gently and lay those things out. And is it true that you've made YouTube tutorials on how to hand wash? I yes, believe- sir. 
And the best way, it's a little secret tip. Go to my YouTube channel and you'll see it. But if you use your lettuce dryer, I know not everyone has a lettuce dryer. But if you want to get a lettuce dryer, it can have dual purpose. You can not only dry your lettuce, but you can also dry your underwear. Do you have a lettuce dryer for lettuce and a lettuce dryer for clothes? No, because by the time my clothes get in there, they're clean. So it's just as clean. Honestly, the lettuce is probably dirtier than my clothes. If you and by the way, you know that smell that you get from the dry cleaners that you can't stand that's like not fresh and yummy? You can hand wash your your wool and your cashmere. You can, Dre, and don't get it twisted. That was one of our first exchanges. It was. I was like, Wait, how did we get connected? The internet. It was like Twitter or something like that. <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts, but I love, yeah. I love. Yeah. What advice do you give to people who want to be actors or people who are trying to find their voice? Okay. So first of all, I will start by saying that I don't give advice. Mm. I offer suggestion. I don't know any better than you. Um, What I can do is share my experience, strength, and hope with you. That's what I've got. Experience, strength, and hope. That's what I have. I I don't, I am, you know, I am not God. uh, So I don't know what's best for you. Um, Another little thing I always say to people, when people ask for your advice, they really, um, I only give 30% of my thoughts because it's none of my business. My job for the people that I love is to either be a shoulder to cry on um, or a cheerleader um, on the sidelines. So that being said, I like the second part of your question for those um, who are looking to find their voice, have the courage to use their voice or to even know their voice, because sometimes you don't even know your voice. Um, journaling is incredibly important. Um, there is a an emotional connection that happens with the pen and your hand um, where you actually can slow your brain down enough um, to get out what's really in your heart. Um, And I think journaling is incredibly important. Do you journal? I do journal, especially when I'm stuck, especially when I'm on a loop of obsession about something, which means something has frightened me. Um, And I start all of my journaling with, Dear God, guide my pen in thoroughness and honesty. I also meditate, but I know meditation is not easy. It was not easy for me, and uh, many people talk about the fact that it's not an easy thing. Um, It's not something you ever do perfectly, but it is an exercise and a practice and an experience of being with myself and allowing my thoughts to sort of move away and moving into the truth of my body. Um, So in terms of finding your voice, I feel like um, the beginning is knowing yourself. So uh, I think more important than using it is um, getting in touch with it Mm. for yourself. And that means you also need um, a core good group of people around you that you trust that um, are not your Instagram friends, but are your real friends that you can actually talk to and look in their eyes and look in their faces when you talk to them. What is next for you? Is there like a project that... Uh, is on the horizon or is there a thing yes, that like honey, the let me is... tell you. Yes, okay. honey. No, I have no is idea. Is coming, coming back? No. <laughs> I have no idea. There's uh, things that are on the horizon I did that I cannot say yet. But they're cool and amazing. That I'm really excited about. Um, not necessarily only in the acting world. Okay. Um, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Let's watch out for Tracy Let's watch. Keep your eyes peeled, <laughs> ladies and gents. Um... <laughs> 
there's this idea in our culture around age and stuff like that that I, again, just don't adhere to. I feel sexier, more alive, more empowered, more myself, more beautiful, more smarter than I've ever felt. Um, more teachable, more open, more willing, um, all of those things. And yet I look at, and there's so much happening in our world. So there's that one topic about like what I feel like at this age. Then there's so much happening in our world that truly can make me feel not hopeful, can make me feel very frightened, um, very sad, and want to be small because when you when I get scared, I want to get small. Um, and then I look at the younger generation, um, Amanda, Yara. Uh, I I hear them and I think of the difference in the opportunities and the way of thinking that they have access to. That's part of where the gender conversation is so fascinating to me. I'm like, gosh, what kind of what kind of thoughts would I be having if I grew up with that fluidity? No, that's I think about what it's like to be a gay black man and like in high school it was you just you couldn't be out like that, you no, know? No. And you see kids now, and they're like, yeah, yes. They're just living such full lives it's at like at 15, 15. And you're like, whoa. But listen, I think about it in the smallest terms, in terms of my hair, which can be an aesthetic conversation, but can also be a revolutionary one. Yeah. I mean, you think of what Angela Davis's Afro meant. It meant something. That was not just like a texture scenario of like, which products do you use? There was something very real there. When Look, I think of when I was a kid, there wasn't one news black newscaster female on TV that wore her hair in a curly way. And I look now and I'm like, boom, 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 boom. You know what I mean? The freedom of that, the freedom of that, that like is incredible to me. That gives me hope. So to answer that question, I think, yeah, to answer that question, I think the um, these expansive conversations around race, gender, um, sexuality, um, self, um, identity, these conversations that are happening have so much bounce and bubble in them that is exciting to me. And that gives me hope. You know, we talk about this idea of protest as telling the truth in public and that we... I mean, DeRay, let me get my pen again. ...stood in the street to tell the truth with our bodies and that we disrupted board meetings and commissions so the truth uh, that the institutions weren't using their power correctly. But I say this in the context because one of the things that I think we all have done that the protests definitely helped sort of usher quickly is that we are telling more truths in more public spaces. Yeah. Like about identity, about systems, about institutions, about and politics, also about power. And also being able to live that truth publicly as yeah. a self. Yeah. You had a magic wand and you could change anything in society or culture, what would it be? God, I mean, you. I hate to be so macro, but like sexism and racism... <laughs> Like, make it go away. The thing that's fascinating about that thought is, like, then what do we do with those people that traffic in it? Because they will be lost, right? <laughs> Maybe that's okay. <laughs> no, but there, I also feel like there's so many ways that even I have, it. like, I've had to come face to face with the ways that I've adopted patriarchy, mm. that I've adopted racism, that I've adopted, adopted, adopted sexism and don't even realize that I am playing into that, the mechanics of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You know, I, that's why I say go as slow as the slowest parts of yourself. I think there, there's a lot to unpack there, but there are people that purposefully and consciously traffic in it. 
Well, we will finally come to a close. Tracy, Okay, amazing. it's too hard. Thanks so much for coming to Pod Save the People. Everybody loves Pod Save the People. And just a quick little shout out to an anonymous person who um, I'll just say LB. Boom. That's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell your friend. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And I will see you back here next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 